My mind immediately went to the fact that I was a mom of two little girls and it was, what do I need to do right now to ensure my survival? But if I don't survive, what do I need to do now to ensure that my kids are okay and happy living their life without their mom? Welcome to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes of wholesaling and house flipping businesses. The systems and automation that we discuss will help you build a real business instead of another job for yourself. From beginners to those doing hundreds of thousands a year, we go deep into the details and strategies that are working today. And now your host, Bill Allen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 7 Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. And today I have a different show for you. I think it's going to be incredible, very um, uh, heartfelt and touching show and also um, a mindset show. So we talked a lot. I I did a mindset presentation on the cruise. We put it out recently and we've gone through this journey, but I'm kind of interrupting our current like scheduled series to bring this to you because right now inside of our mastermind group, inside the seven figure flipping community, uh, we have one of our members who's battling cancer right now. So um, I'm not going to mention who it is, but I just want him to know that we have his back. We have, uh, we're on his team. Everybody is praying for him. Everybody uh, cares about him a ton. And, and our whole community is just kind of, you know, praying for him, um, thinking about him and supporting him and raising him up and lifting him up uh, as he needs it. So um, uh, it's going to be tough for me not to mention his name right now, but we we got you, man. And um, this one is, it kind of stemmed from hearing your story and you kind of opening up and and telling us what's going on with you and your journey. And I have a really good friend who I went to high school with and um, we were athletes together. We'll talk a lot about our story and our journey and how we met and how we kind of grew up together. And she had a battle with cancer a few years ago and has kind of come out the backside of that. But I saw her story right after this. It's like, you know, God puts you in a place and directs you where you want to go. And it's, I heard this um, from one of our members and then I saw her story just laid out in bullet point in long form and just reading that said, you know what? she has a message that would be perfect for our members to hear, for him to hear, for anybody out there to hear and to raise some awareness in her, her form of cancer. And, um, I wanted to bring her on the show. So I hope, I think you guys are going to really love this. I'm really excited to talk to her. Um, I, I, we were even just joking pre-show and just laughing together. And it's really kind of took me back to, I don't know, 1997 or something when we, uh, (laughs) Uh, right before we graduated high school. So, um, so I want to welcome my good friend and she actually lives right down the street from me now here in Nashville, which is incredible. Uh, I, I'll call her Natalie Cox, but she now goes by Natalie Hennis. Uh, so got married and changed her last name. So Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And while you call me Natalie Cox, I'm probably going to call you Billy because <laughs> that's how I grew up knowing you. <laughs> but no, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I, we changed that. Uh, I, I went all through college that way too. And then when I went to grad school, it was like the, the perfect time to kind of change my name and grow up. So I was like, I don't know, I guess I was 23 at that point when I had to change from Billy to Bill. I always, I always didn't really love Billy for some reason. I don't know. My, my son, we call him Will now. So I was sure. a, I, we had, I'm the, I'm the third William and he's the fourth William. So now we, I said, uh, I didn't like it, so we'll just call you Will, and now we can tell the difference between us. So um, you can call me whatever you want. I've been called a lot worse on the show than Billy. Um, so why don't you tell a little bit? Maybe let's go back to kind of where we met and and kind of growing up together and what that what that was. 
Yeah, well, um, we were the first graduating class of our high school. And um, you and I both played varsity soccer. And I feel like they were always kind of trying to put the boys and the girls team together and getting us to, you know, um, socialize, be motivated off of each other. But um, we met, we had the same group of friends and um, dated one of my good friends. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that's where we met. And I remember we were both state champions senior year. And when they announced it in the meeting, all of the boys team yelled that we were co-state champions because we shared the title with another <laughs> team uh, in another part of Maryland. So, but yeah, no, we had yep. some good memories. So super competitive athletes, obviously. Okay. We wouldn't even let the girls team say, hey, no, <laughs> we're, we're better, right? So, um, but it, you know, you were always incredibly competitive. So uh, a great athlete. Um, did you just play soccer? You played a... Uh, played a... Uh, basketball okay. and ran track uh, until soccer took over spring as well. Yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, I, I remember you as the soccer player, right? But I remember you, like I was a wrestler too. And we, mm -hmm. we, we played a bunch of different sports and sports was really important to me. But I also remember kind of, you know, running around all over town, doing some crazy stuff, doing things. And we were on the homecoming court together. Yep, that's I, right. So I, I tell you what, maybe we'll share that photo. So you and I are sitting next to each other as like, I don't know, like a prince and princess or whatever they called it on yeah. somebody's convertible in a parade, right? That's right. So that I just saw that that picture pop up on my Facebook feed and I shared it again. It was, <laughs> what, how, how long ago was this? 20, 22, yeah. 23 years ago or something like that. It was that. the fall of 97. So yeah. Yep. So it's, it's crazy. I just thinking about, um, I, I, we've lived twice as long, we've been over twice as long than, than it was then. So I don't know, maybe we're dating right. ourselves, but this is my 40th <laughs> year. And so I'm, uh, anyway, I'm excited to kind of talk to you and dig into this because yeah, sure. we, so then you went off to college uh, and did you go mm -hmm. straight to Davidson? I went straight to Davidson where I played four years of um, D1 soccer there as well. Okay. And then what was it? What would you do after that? So I went to Georgia Tech and then mm -hmm. we kind of like lost touch at that point. I, I yep. didn't really come back to Maryland a lot, but I think when, when I did, we could potentially, we'd see each other on like Thanksgiving or different times yep. occasionally. And um, keep in mind, guys, if you're listening, this was a school that was put together and attracted three different schools at the time. So they created this high school and we were, when we were juniors, there were no seniors. So the first year that this school was created, we were juniors and I was a transplant from another school. It's called a technology magnet program. And I really went there to play soccer. Our soccer coach came, uh, Bill Stara, and he, I've talked about him before. He was kind of one of those role models and mentors to me of my leadership skills. And then um, our junior year, we didn't have any seniors, and we lost in the finals our junior year of uh, the state championship for soccer, and then our senior year, we won. And our senior year, we were the first graduating class. And then we kind of, like, Natalie came from a different school, and then there was another school that kind of fed this program, mm -hmm. this brand new school. So we were all kind of, I remember showing up that first day, I didn't know anybody. It was really kind of uncomfortable, but we had that soccer team. So we showed up a couple weeks before school for soccer. So I got to know some of the girls and we were like checking them out. And she said that I dated one of her friends. We won't really dig into that too much today, I, I hope. So <laughs> then um, we kind of, uh, you know, graduated. Then you went to school, I went to school and you played yeah. four years of division one soccer. And then what'd you do after that? Yeah, so right after I kind of decided I was not gonna go home to Maryland. Um, I knew, I was an English major at Davidson um, and it was either lawyer, teacher, kind of, you know, what are you going to do with an English major? And I actually really wanted to sing. Um, and so I had been singing a lot, doing voice lessons through college and everything. And that was the main reason I moved to Nashville in uh, June, right after graduation. 
um, got here. I worked with a few songwriters and stuff for a while. Um, uh, my uh, best friend from college actually knew one of the biggest songwriters um, here in Nashville. And so I worked with him a little bit, um, tried out for American Idol. That was an interesting story. Um, nice. But, you know, I just kind of got here and realized uh, after doing it for a, a little bit that I wasn't really sure that was for me. Um, and then I met my husband, Rob, here, who's from Wisconsin. We both happened to come in. And, um, you know, we weren't sure we were going to stay, but we stayed and we got married and we had two kids here and we have just fallen in love with the Nashville area. And that's, you know, kind of why we're still here. And my whole family's all over the place in the country. Um, but this was, you know, this was a good place to raise kids. And, you know, I've done, um, I worked in sports marketing after I decided singing was not for me. I worked for the Nashville Sports Council, um, shifted over to television and um, uh, advertising for years. And then I decided to go back to Belmont and get my master's in teaching where I taught for years. Um, and then when I had my second daughter, I stopped that and became a personal trainer. So I've kind of been all over the place. but. Personal training really is awesome for me because it kind of, in a way, is like full circle comes back to that, you know, that I just feel like I'm an athlete. That's, I define myself as an athlete. Um, and so uh, what I'm doing now and it, how I'm impacting and helping others is really, um, it's the best place I can be right now and my, awesome. for my kids to see. Yeah. And I've seen you, you know, coaching the kids soccer and, and uh -huh. being out there and uh, seeing images and you shared an old video of you um, uh, kind of coaching a soccer team and stuff from years ago. So it's really cool. Mm -hmm. And so I actually didn't know what you did after Davidson. So yeah. coming back here um, in singing and then moved into kind of sports um, TV and marketing and then over mm -hmm. to the personal training side. So I knew you as a personal trainer. When I came mm -hmm. back here, we kind of uh, linked back up again. And that's what I just yep. so um okay so but what then then what happened so you had two two little kids mm -hmm. and kind of maybe we can just jump into that story because i sure. think you're, i think the backstory of like singing and uh, and that kind of thing will come into play here about some things that you you know that you may have felt like you were going to lose so what happened um with, with your journey a little bit about kind of the Diagnosis. how did you yeah what, what was that like um okay so uh it was the summer of 2017. I um, was probably at the in the best shape of my life at that point. Um, a couple of years out from having my second daughter and having been a personal trainer for a few years, I was just in great shape, eating really well, um, exercising a lot, uh, coaching soccer still. And um, we were, Rob and I were at a wedding up in Newport, Rhode Island, and we were having some uh, fresh tomatoes from one of um, the, my friend's gardens. And I just noticed I had what I thought was a canker sore or an ulcer in my mouth, which people get all the time when they eat a lot of acidic foods. So I didn't think anything of it. Um, about a week and a half later, we get back to Nashville and um, I noticed that it was still there. So first thing I did, I Googled, how long should a canker sore last? And um, it said about four to five days. So I thought, well, that's weird. Mine's lasted about you know, doubled that time. So I called my dentist, who is my friend, and I said, uh, Alicia, I have this spot in my mouth. Uh, it's not going away. And she didn't seem too concerned. Um, she did say, you know, it's probably just a really stubborn canker sore. Don't have any lemons, acidic foods. Um, but if it's not gone in another week, call me. So another week went by, it was still there. And I called her 
And um, she said, let's get you in to see an oral surgeon and have it biopsied. So I went to um, an oral surgeon's office here in Franklin, and she was lovely. Um, you know, but she looked at me too, and she's like, you're, you're as healthy as can be. You're a personal trainer. You know, you're doing everything right. I can think of many things that this is that is not, you know, the big C. And um, I was confident, and it's a small practice, so it took 10 days to get the biopsy results back. Um, Rob just happened to be with me uh, the day that we went in. They didn't call me ahead of time and say, bring someone. I just went in. He was with me. Um, and uh, the doctor came in. We talked for a few minutes. And um, I, I could see just her face changed. Um, and it, it, she looked at me and said, I don't, I, she goes, I, I don't even know how to tell you this, but um, you have cancer of um, the floor of your mouth, and, which is also referred to as oral cancer. And um, it, that just was the beginning of it all. So from, but from the point that I noticed something in my mouth to when I was diagnosed was probably about a two-month time period. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, what I remember immediately doing was, other than feeling a complete, utter shock, I just remember saying, I have to call my parents. And she said, you take whatever time you need. You stay in this room. You call whoever you need to call. And um, so it was, um, for Rob, it was a tough moment. It was exactly a year to the day that his mother had passed away. And we already were thinking about her a lot that day. Um, and so it was just kind of a, a double hit for him. And I remember... I called my parents. That was the first call. My dad's a um, gastroenterologist, a physician, and I kind of knew that he would just know what to say and tell me what to do exactly. And he um, he gets on the phone. They were actually in Florida uh, babysitting my sister's children, and um, he had to step out of the room. And um, my dad is uh, he's somebody who I saw maybe cry twice in his life. Um, one of the times when his mother passed away, but, um, when my dad got choked up, when he heard this, I knew it was two things. It was one, a parent should never hear, you know, something like this about their child. And number two, um, he must've known kind of exactly what type of cancer this is and how mutilating it was. Otherwise I think he, you know, would have, felt a little more confidence in the process, but, and so, and my mom got on and she was obviously very upset, but also quite stoic. Um, and, um, we just set a plan immediately. It, there was no time at this point to waste. And we just set a plan and we were like, the options were go to MD Anderson, um, or right here in Vanderbilt, they have a world renowned, um, doctor for, um, head and neck cancers, which is what oral cancer falls under. And his name is Dr. Netterville, and he was not the person I was able to get in to see, but I, I got in to see Dr. Sarah Rohde, who trained under him and had already at this point performed about 500 surgeries um, of the uh, head and neck area. So my dad had many questions for her before, and I've just, she's become like a sister to me since. So that's kind of the before, uh, before the tough physical part all happened.
You know, that, that's, we, we talked pre-show about the fact that you haven't really talked about this before. Um, you've, a lot of it's been on social media or written or uh, images and stuff from the whole story. So this probably, it might be a little bit tough and open some wounds. So, and before the show, I thought that I would be fine. And as you were just talking, it took me back to the place when I heard that about James. And I, I like just trying to hold it together as you were talking was difficult for me because I, I remember sitting in probably a very similar room to you. Um, hearing some news about my son who hasn't been born yet of uh, something that I thought we would never get past. And um, it's, it's so hard to hear that stuff and you go to the darkest places when that happens, yes. right? So anyway, um, I, so what, what stood out to me about, uh, and, and maybe that's just a warning that I'm throwing out there depending on where we go sure. with this of how things are going to go for both of us. So when, what stood out to me about your post was that you were, I think it said you were 37 years old. Is that right? You were 37 at the time. At diagnosed. Yeah. Diagnosis. And you were in the best shape of your life. You never thought like you were, you were at the the peak, right. Of where we Mm -hmm. think that we are and something can just take you down to the very bottom. And you never thought that that at that time, something like this would happen. And so when I saw that, that's what took me to our member right now, who is a young guy in good shape, um, has no reason to think that he would be, um, getting cancer now. And so if, if there's a couple things that I'm hoping that our audience takes from this is um, number one, everybody's going through something, you know, and number two is regardless, uh, you can take a lot of these lessons that we're going to talk about going forward and beating this thing and, and where you are now um, to anything in your life, your personal life, your business life, any of that stuff. So, um, so this is probably the you never thought that you would be here getting that kind of news at 37, especially you're at in great shape. You're a personal trainer. You take care of yourself. Like, how is that even possible? And then you guys just started going, it sounds like. was Is that what we happened did. now? It's just like, what, what do we need to do to take care of this? So I am very much um, a planner and a doer type person. Um, and if I feel uh, a certain motivation to get something done, then it's nothing, nothing stands in my way at all. Um, and in this case, um, for me, I didn't quite process it, um, in regards to what am I going to do for myself right now? So my mind immediately went to the fact that I was a mom of, um, a little kid, a little, two little girls at the time who were four and seven. And it was, what do I need to do right now? A to ensure my survival, but B if I don't make it through this, which um, this this cancer has actually a pretty low survival rate, um, and I, I can get into that in a little bit, but um, it was B, if I don't survive, what do I need to do now to ensure that my kids um, are okay and happy and living um, living their life without their mom? And so the first thing I knew that Rob and I needed to do was tell them. And at first I wasn't sure I was going to tell them at first. So we were just going to say, you know, send them off to my sisters in Tampa and we were just going to take care of it. But we realized this is going to be something that impacts us for years and years and years and possibly forever. And so I called their pediatrician and I said, I, I, I need advice. I need to know what I need to do with my kids. And he said, you know, you need to be three things. You need to make it simple, honest, and hopeful. And so that's exactly what I did. And Rob actually um, had a hard time with 
you know, the communication with them. And so what I did was I literally took each one of them by themselves and had a very specific conversation with them. Um, I took Samantha first, who was seven at the time, and I knew she would understand a little bit more than Maggie, who was only four. And, um, and I told Samantha and, um, I told her in the best way that I knew how, and I didn't really know how, but I did the best that I could do making it as hopeful as possible, letting her know that, you know, mommy's going to be gone for a little bit. Um, mommy won't be able to talk to you for a while, um, which I can talk to about later. I lost my voice for months. Um, and, um, but it's a small cancer. Um, and we're going to, the doctor, we have great doctors and, you know, we spoke to the fact that they were just wonderful community that Grammy and doc were going to, their grandparents, my parents were going to come and live with us for a few months. And, um, you know, I know this sounds funny, but almost like make it fun <laughs> because I knew my time in the hospital was going to be a while. And so we sent them to Tampa. We sent them to Tampa to live with my sister for a little bit um, during the hardest part. And then when they came home, my parents were here to kind of pick up the pieces. Uh, Rob was still able to work. Um, he, he went through some pretty rough times as, as the caregiver and father to the little, to Sam and Maggie. And, um, my dad pretty much never left my side the entire time. I think the doctor slash nurse in him just kicked in and he was there every step of the way. Um, and thank God, because there were a couple times in the hospital where he had to step in and say, she can't have this medicine. <laughs> you just gave her this an hour ago. And I think about if he hadn't been there, you know, what could have happened at certain times. Um, and then my mom, um, my mom was really me for a, a long time. She was with the girls, getting them on the bus, getting them off the bus, or Samantha, and then taking Maggie to school, getting their lunches, getting their dinners, doing the dishes. She was me um, for, for a while. And so we just kind of had to say, this is a tough time in our family, but we're going to get through it. With Maggie, who was only four at the time, it was much, much more of a simple conversation. She didn't even really know what cancer was. And so we just kind of talked about how your body's made of cells, and sometimes one cell can get really angry, but the doctors are going to do whatever they can to get rid of that angry cell. And that's, it was as simple as that. I remember um, you guys had come over to our house a couple times with, with James, and your mm -hmm. kids were just awesome with him. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is before this, we, we, we reconnected here in Nashville before this diagnosis, and yeah. you had come over a couple times. We had a birthday party, I think, for James. And another one for Will and your kids would come over and they, they're, they're amazing little kids. And they had seen James with this tube in his nose. Mm -hmm. And I remember when, when we, when I found out, um, and you, you told me that you told the kids that you were asking me about this tube and some, some, some like, what's it like? And yeah. what's it going to be? I, I was like, I don't really know. Um, but your kids had seen that. So that was a way that you used to explain to the kids um, what mommy's going to look like when you come out of the surgery and, and things like that. So I thought that was uh, really, you, you use some really fun ways, it sounds like, to make it not so stressful for the kids. Right. And um, what was it like for you inside during this time? Like, are you f completely freaking out that it, it's going it's to not go well? Um, you know, I, I wasn't. I, I almost had, it was almost like, um, I, don't, I can't even explain it. Something was just over kind of overcame me and I, I couldn't get nervous or scared. I just had to do and go. 
and um, fix things. I wrote out a will. I talked to the girls. Um, I had all my insurance stuff put together for myself and the kids. Um, we, uh, I, I wrote death plans. I wrote plans for a funeral for myself. And it was, I wasn't processing it probably the way a, a psychologist would probably say you should or a psychiatrist, but for me, keeping myself busy and putting a plan in place was what kept me calm so that when I did have to go in for surgery a couple weeks later, I knew all if I, I would I knew I had done all I could possibly do other than fight for my life. So So what well, you know it's interesting I wrote uh, I wrote down reflex kicked in at that time. It sounds like that's kind of mm -hmm. the um a little bit of the planner in you, the detail oriented type person. I'm gonna I, the mom in you, right? Like I'm right. gonna make sure everybody else is taken care of before me. And reflex that, kind of like fight or flight almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, a little bit, but it's, it's almost to me, like you're, you're saying, I don't know what happened. I don't know why it's just, you go back to this, like, what is your inherent nature inside of you? Like, who are you? And right. I, I wonder if that's, it goes back to how you were raised and the kind of person that you are and, and that you want to take care of others before you take care of yourself. And if somebody else would have had a different reaction, right? You have the, the people who might not, they don't, they really are selfish. They don't care about others. They're just going to give up and, and, or say like, uh, it, why me, why me, why me all the time. And I really think that's, that's kind of that choice that you have at this point. I felt, I remember hearing about James and, and all of the, all of the things that we go through now as raising him, it's, we have two options. We can feel sorry for ourselves and wonder why it happened, or we can just use it as power, like to just mm -hmm. change it, right? We can take it and say, like, hey, I was put in a unique position for a reason. Why? Mm -hmm. And really dig into that. So I'm sure we'll we'll get there um, now coming out of the back of this for, for you. But what I'm hearing a lot of is you really kind of, when you're at this point, you really find out who you are. Sure. I do. I, when I think about you, though, I think about how positive you always seem when you're talking about James, um, which is how, again, I feel like I tried to be with my kids, especially in others. I didn't want to burden others, but you do ha internally have your own moments of stress and anxiety related to it all that you don't necessarily want the rest of the world to see. And honestly, I didn't want really Rob to see it. Of course, he saw me break down at times leading up, but I didn't also want him to maybe feel any of that. So, cause I knew he's gonna, he was gonna have such a big job on his shoulders. Um, yeah. Well, the other thing I wrote down was that you, you had this incredible support network and system, right? I like did. You had your mom and dad come down and you had your sister to watch the kids and you had all of these things in place that these people that were cheering for you. And yeah. we, we, I mean, I'm sh we might get to the point of all the other support that you had with neighbors and food and all mm -hmm. the people that were just behind you, the Matt Strong shirts, like the, the, that was the insane leader, right? My parents I mean, Maryland is a great place to be, but my dad at that point was like, I, I want to retire in Franklin because these are the type of people that I want to be around for the rest of my life. He said, I have never in my life, even as a doctor, seen people rally like they have in this situation. And you know, a lot of it was like, I think people just knew my kids and Rob needed that support. You know, the meals and everything, the meals weren't for me. I was eating through a feeding tube. <laughs> like they were there for my family, their teachers. And I, that is what we needed the most. 
Yeah. So, so, okay. So what was like, mm-hmm. what happened now? So you're at the hospital and yeah. next, so you got everything, you got the eyes dotted, the T's crossed. You feel like, okay, what's, yeah. what's the next step here on something like this? So Vanderbilt, I knew a lot of people, it took sometimes months and months to get into Vanderbilt um, for this type of cancer. And so we used all of the connections that we had, my dad, my brother who works in healthcare, my sister-in-law who works for the CDC and Rob who knew a lot of people in healthcare. And we were able to get in within a week and a half, which is just unheard of. But I'm so thankful for that because this is a very fast growing cancer of the um, oral cavity. And so the quicker you could get in, the earlier you can be um, staged, um, the better your chances of survival. Um, And I think back to the moment when I felt that spot in my mouth and how many people have things going on in their mouth. They tell me all the time now, they're like, we've had a spot in our mouth. We haven't seen a doctor in a year for it. We're just thinking it'll go away. I'm like, go get it checked. (laughs) Go. (laughs) But, um, you know, so anyway, so the next step was um, I was told to put on weight. because I knew weight loss was going to happen. And so they said, just put on a few pounds, eat whatever you want over the next few days before the surgery. Um, Didn't really know what the surgery was going to be um, and how kind of mutilating to the whole, my thought was, oh, they're just going to take this little spot out of my mouth. Well, it wasn't that at all. Did did they know? Or did they not know? They they know, they knew. And in the meeting um, right before the surgery, a few days before, um, they went over everything that was going to happen. And I would, th- at that moment, and this is going to sound really f- kind of funny, but when they told me they were going to remove, use my wrist tissue and an artery from my left arm to rebuild my tongue and my floor of mouth and my gum line, my first thought was, am I going to be able to play tennis again? Mm. (laughs) And so it wasn't, oh gosh, I'm going to lose part of my body. I might die from this. It was just make sure, you know, doc, that I can play tennis again. But I, I'm kind of also thankful that I naturally felt that way because I didn't go to that, you know, darkest place immediately. I did get there at certain times in the hospital. Um, Well, I think that goes straight to your kind of the mindset that you're in, right? It's, it's the place that you're putting yourself in. You're, you, you, when I hear that, I don't hear like, that's funny or, or right. can I play tennis or you're a little bit nuts. What I hear is you, you know that you're going to get through this. Yeah. Like when, yeah. when this is over, maybe what it was, yes. when this is over, I want to make sure that I can play tennis. So your yeah. mindset is right at that point. You're saying yeah. like, at no point did you give up at no point yeah. did you quit at no point are you throwing in the towel or saying what if it's just, it's, it, I mean, as this, as the story's unfolding, it's sure. obvious what the outcome is going to be because you're going to fight through this whole thing. Sure. So, yeah, and, and, there, and I think there's people who, who probably go into that saying like, oh my gosh, what? Like, no, this is yeah. just getting worse and worse and pity, pity, pity. But you're already on the back end in your mind. And right. I think our mind is so strong in what we do, whether it's, it's anything in life, but you, you're going to make it through this regardless of, of. That is so true. And I, I mean, that kind of puts it in perspective for me. I'm not the best with reflecting about all of this stuff, but that does kind of make sense. Um, you know, but, you know, but I do think I did get to a point in the hospital. So, well, let let me back up a little bit. (laughs) So the surgery, we flew our kids to Tampa. And when we told the girls they were going to go to Tampa, they didn't obviously hear us say that my sister was going to fly to Nashville and then fly back to Tampa with them. 
Um, and I, when Rob and I told them they were going to go to Tampa for a while and live with their cousins, um, my older daughter, who was seven at the time, she put her arm around Maggie and said, well, Maggie, when we're in the airport, I'll bring my purse and we'll buy, I'll buy us some snacks so that we have food for the air, airplane ride. And Rob's and my heart just sunk at that. We realized what a strong little girl. She thought this whole time that they were going to be flying by themselves to Tampa. And I, and we, we just took a step back and we were like, this is a lot on them. This is going to be a lot. And, um, so my sister flew here. She flew them back. Um, and then the next day we went in for the surgery and my parents came, Rob was there and it was really, um, good for them all to be there to, and my minister for my, um, she showed up at 5 AM and just prayed with us. And, um, and then I went back and, um, Rob said after they had given me the IV and I was starting to fall asleep, he kind of walked me as far as he could. And he said, and I, barely remember this um but vaguely do he said i just he had he grabbed my hand i grabbed his hand back and i looked at him and i said you're the love of my life and he said that just shattered him um and he just took that with him the whole time and the surgery itself lasted nine hours um and i was wheeled into icu at about eight or nine o'clock that evening um and so uh that recovery time so when i when i kind of came to i didn't really come to because they're just pumping you with all the meds and you're out of it um but i couldn't close my mouth my tongue was so swollen um they did something called a radical neck dissection where they i did not google this beforehand and i'm really glad i didn't but a radical neck dissection is when they basically cut your neck from ear to chin and um they take out lymph nodes to test to see if the cancer has spread. And when you look up a radical neck dissection, you can see they literally pull your face off. And so Whoa. I'm just thankful they were able to put it back. Um, I still can't feel that side of my face at all. And, um, but, and then they, you know, I, I spoke about the tissue of my arm and the artery from my arm to rebuild my mouth. And I speak actually very well in comparison to a lot who have gone through this. I, I went through a lot of speech therapy, but um, you know, the recovery, I spoke, I was able to speak with a lovely woman named Lori um, who had this cancer uh, two years before me. And she has just really made it her mission to help um, patients who are recently diagnosed and just talk to them. And when I spoke with her on the phone, she she does not speak um it's hard to hear her over the phone because she lost a lot of her voice um, but she told me or she asked me do you want to hear what could happen in the hospital um, after the surgery or do you not want to know and i said i want to know everything i want to know what could happen what i'll be up against and all that i want i just wanted to know um and so i'm so thankful she did because there were two two moments during that eight-day hospital stay where I almost died and um, I knew one of them I actually knew could happen thank thanks to her um, and so I mean I was just I it that hospital stay is really hard I'm, I had um, Rob was there trying to so just be a person of inspiration for me and 
he had a hard time understanding when he was talking to me about the girls in Tampa saying, they're doing great. They went to Bush Gardens with Aunt Emily. I couldn't speak. I just held up my hand and on the whiteboard I wrote, please stop. I couldn't hear anything about anyone else in my life. I, in that moment, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It was truly 100% I was surviving. That was my that was all I could do at that point. I was fighting for my life. And um, Rob, Rob didn't really understand that. He was like, why, why didn't she want to hear about how the girls are joining? Isn't that going to help her? And it wasn't at that point. It was making me feel stress in, to a mm-hmm. degree. Um, and so I had a trachea breathing for me. Um, the feeding tube, like little James. Um, mine was yellow. I think James was, was blue when the girls, because Maggie made a point to say, it's not the same color as James. <laughs> it was, um, I think it's yellow with a small blue stripe on it. She probably saw the, so that uh, calls the size. The sizing is okay. on that, but it's, it was mostly, I, I remember a lot of yellow up his nose. He had it for like six months. Yeah, I, I remember. Crazy. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 I thought about, I thought about him. I remember there like thinking, I want to talk about that, but, but yeah. so before we do, let, let me, uh, yeah, I, I want to ask a couple questions. So, you know, sure. I, I think I haven't, I, that, it was really hard to hear by the way. So you probably saw me like wiping my eyes and stuff because um, it took, it's, this is taking me to a place that I haven't thought about in two years. So, sure. um, because on the other side of that, there's somebody that is, um, that is letting their somebody go potentially. Um <laughs> Uh, so I know how Rob feels. I don't know how James felt or how you felt, but I know how Rob feels. And that was probably the hardest thing for me was that moment in the unknown, yeah. right? Because when that kind of like dolly rolls away, you don't know what's going to happen. So, okay. and, um, so for us, it's, it's really hard because we, um, we are out of control. Like I'm a control freak and I want to be in control. And that second I was like, I, I, this is up to him and it's up to everybody else involved. And it's really, really hard to release that. And so um, that was the hardest part for me to hear. Um, and James couldn't hear what we were saying to him, but I remember the first time we handed, we've handed him over four different times. So I remember the, and, and frankly, we handed him over like three different times for um, heart catheters that don't seem to be that big of a deal, but they are. And sure. so, um, so I, I know what that feels like. And that first time was the hardest ever. You just, you have no idea what's going to happen. So um, I, the question that I wanted to ask you is like, um, why do you think you wanted to know all those things? Like, why do you think when she said, do you want to know or not? Um, why do you think you said yes? Because I'm also a little bit of a control freak. And um, while I want to 100% trust my doctors and nurses, I still have that. I know that I am the best person to take care of myself. And so um, the the actual thing that happened was behind my trachea, I kept saying, I can't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And, um, I had such great nurses. What? Oh my God, they were, I can't even tell you how amazing my nurses were. But at the same time, there was this moment that happened and I, I'm saying I can't breathe, but I'm not saying this. I'm actually writing this on my whiteboard and texting it to Rob, telling them I can't breathe because I can't speak. And so they're like, well, what can we do? And I'm like, get the nurse. So the nurse would come in and she would say, but the machine says you're at 99% um, oxygen. And I'm like, I can't breathe. 
I cannot breathe. Trust me, trust the patient, don't trust mm -hmm. the machine. And so a whole entire day went by where I was just laboring in my breathing and the machine was saying it wasn't. And um, we demanded the on-call doctor finally come in. And so he came in and this was, this was a moment that is so disgusting, but yet humorous and Rob and I laugh about it. Um, the doctor comes in and says, okay, what's going to happen is I'm going to remove the trach temporarily. There's going to be a hole in your neck, but the second I take it off, I need you to <coughs> cough through your neck. And like, I think about this now and it kind of makes me feel like others probably think it's the nastiest thing ever. And I just have to laugh about it because I have no other choice. <laughs> and so he said, okay, on the count of three, one, two, three, he removed it. I coughed and literally across the room shot this bloody, huge nastiness <laughs> of phlegm that he goes, well, you sure did have a block. He put the trach back in and I could breathe again. And Rob was like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that on video. <laughs> and, and why didn't we do that uh, 24 hours 24 ago? hours ago. Yeah. And so that, that was one of the scariest moments. Um, the second one was, it was an, a nighttime in the ICU. It was like my third night. And they tell you with the feeding tube and the trach, you cannot vomit. You can't vomit. And so, you know, James may have felt this at times through the feeding tube if you're fed too fast or if you don't have enough water going through, like you just feel nauseous, like you want to vomit. And um, the nurse on call, he was very stressed. He was so stressed that, that it actually, we found out later that the man next to me had was dying that night. And so he was just back and forth, back and forth. And when he came in, he gave me water too quickly through my feeding tube. And I, I, I just, I grabbed Rob's hand. I was like, I'm going to vomit. I'm going to vomit. And they, they said, you cannot vomit. You will aspirate. You cannot vomit. And so I just, Rob just sat there and like for being that, you know, Italian with such high energy and passion, he was the person who calmed me to a point where I mean, he had to take me to a different place in my mind um, to, he basically saved my life that night um, and, and kept me from vomiting. Um, and so that was, that was the second really scary moment in the hospital. But yeah, the, the, the hardest thing that, that I remember you telling me about that, that NG tube and how long did you have it in for a week? I had it for three weeks. Three weeks. And I lost about 15 pounds which is now why they told me to gain weight before. Okay. So I remember you telling me that because with James would always pull it out, mm -hmm. pull it out and he, he, th he got sick a lot. So they were worried about him aspirating as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Didn't have a trach though. So it, not, not as big of a deal, but these, these kids, still a big deal. St it, it is. And so they wanted to do a procedure on him um, for his, uh, for his stomach uh, because they, they thought he may have been, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like, uh, Ref yeah, reflux. Reflux. They, they, were, they were thinking he could have reflux mm -hmm. because he, was, he would get sick. I mean, I remember this time he was getting sick all the time. Every night, mm -hmm. like two, three times we'd give him the milk and then he'd yeah. get sick in his bed and right. everything that he ate. So we all were worried about is him gaining weight, you know, and, cause, sure. and, and, and thriving. And so um, he would pull it out and we were so scared to have another surgery to put in the, um, the G tube that he has now. Mm -hmm. So he has, he had a little surgery, but he had been through like four surgeries and it's, it's like, it was our problem. We, it, sure. it was, we should have done that earlier, but they also weren't focused on it. That was like the lowest priority, which right. he probably saw too. There are things that they were like, that yeah. may have made you uncomfortable. But when you told me how it felt 
afterwards. Yeah. You told me, I said, how, how was it? You told me it was the, that was one of the worst things that you could ever feel is having that go down yeah. your nose and, and mm -hmm. be there. We're trying to get him to eat by mouth. It's uncomfortable for him. And then we're trying to get him to talk and do all the things that kids do right. when they, you know, and drink, drink water and drink milk and all these things. And I, the, that fact that he couldn't tell us what you told me and mm -hmm. what you were able to communicate, he couldn't it makes do you it. wonder what he was feeling. hundred yeah. percent. I know how he's feeling. He's feeling the same way you were. And it makes yeah. it made, that made that conversation that I had with you is probably the hardest one because it made me go back and say, I, I screwed up. Like we, we should have not worried about another little surgery, but anyway, like the past is the past. Sure, we can't sure. change it now, but, and he's happy and, and doing really well. But that's, I, that's, there's a couple memories that I have from this because we didn't see each other all the time. Um, but the fact that we, we had lived through something similar, mm -hmm. we have even more of a deeper connection now, I think. And, and so we could share some of those things. And right. I, I know what Rob's going through, not with a spouse, but with a, a, a child. Sure. Is you are just super helpless. And I, he's telling you that stuff because it's like, what else are we going to do? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so helpless in here. I want to, I, we think that that's the right thing to do. Like, I right. would just be there and just hold James's hand. And then I would just try to get my mind off of things because you, for us, no control, our mind goes to the deepest, darkest place that we don't want to be. So I would work more. I would uh, find things to do. I would just uh, try to stay out of that place, like out of the, the what if kind of thing. So, so then you went into kind of recovery after this. It was that surgery and then recovery. Yeah. So, um, I went in for surgery October 23rd, 2017, and I was let, I uh, was released, <laughs> whatever they said, from the, they released me from the hospital on Halloween. And um, so the next step was... Um, so was that two weeks? That's two yeah, weeks in the hospital? Like, it was eight, eight or nine days. It was oh, okay. eight or nine days um, in the ICU. And then... Um, home and at home I still had they were they removed the trachea the day I left which was very scary I was very much afraid to be able to breathe on my own but uh, again you just do it um and then home with the feeding tube um and while home recovery you know I still wasn't really able to close my mouth very well um the feeding tube had to happen because my mouth was so swollen I could my tongue was so swollen I couldn't get food down to swallow and I was healing from the trachea. So there was really no swallow. Um, and my dad, literally the moment I woke up, he was sitting in a chair right by me. Um, he gave me my meds every night, um, which was a lot of meds that helped me physically, but also a lot of like, uh, it wasn't Xanax, but it was an anxiety type medication just because of the mental trauma that you go through with all this. Um, and Rob, just remember he at this point when I had gotten home he was able to tell me you know his mind took him to a place where he just he said I can't do girls hair like that's where his mind went I can't do girls hair if you die I can't help I can't do certain things with them and um he didn't sleep well for a long time I still doesn't sleep well but <laughs> is there still um, fear of that now after the surgery that you won't won't make it or are you in recovery now like we made it out of the surgery I'm I'm good all I have to do is recover here or is he still in a place like that now So I think he's actually in a even better place than I am in terms of being positive and you know he sees me doing well I still while I am doing really well um I'm still the one who feels like 
I know I, I know I'm, I can't chew on my right side because I still don't have teeth there, which I'm in the process of getting. Um, I know it's hard for me to swallow. And when I'm at restaurants, like I have to use a little spoon and push my food to the left-hand side. And like, it's, it's embarrassing, especially when I'm with new people. Um, and it's, well, hey, Natalie, I, I, yeah. I meant, I meant at this time when you left the hospital. Yeah. So like when he said, I can't do girl's hair. Like yeah. When you're got the feeding tube in. Yeah. Um, and now it, it, are at this point, are are they saying like everything's good? We removed all the cancer. We're at a point where we're um, fine. Or are you still thinking that this this could go south at then? So before my last day, um, they got the results back from the surgery um, and said that they had gotten everything. Um, it had all the edges were clear. They it had not spread to my lymph nodes. Um, CT scans I had to do for the first year every three months um, to check to see if it had reoccurred. Um, this second year, which was last year, it was every six months CT scans. My last CT scan was November, which was clear. And I just saw my um, oral surgeon and oncologist a couple weeks ago. And my husband asked him the question. He said, when can we officially say you're, that she's cancer free? And they said, at this point, even though you're doing well and you have a, I think, 85% chance of survival um, and much lower chance of recurrence um they said un until we don't usually say that until they're you know five seven years out um and you know i, I have friends in um the group i go to gilda's club with who have had head and neck cancer um they didn't catch it quite as early and they were staged at you know stage four but um some of them have gone seven or eight years being cancer free and they have just had reoccurrence and so i know that this is a super um aggressive cancer that could always come back. And so my mind in the back of my mind, I always kind of think about that as I'm living life every day. Um, uh, but Rob is very positive now and I need that. Um, he, he doesn't live in my shoes physically, so he doesn't quite feel and like, it's always a daily reminder for me, but, um, you know, he's kind of turned a lot, which is great. So what, what about, Okay. So that, that recovery obviously took, took some time, got, you got yeah. back. Uh, I, I remember at that, you came over to the house not long after that. Mm -hmm. And, um, just in, in, you gave me like a warning. You're like, Hey, I'm, I talk like you might not understand some of the things that I'm saying. Um, I'm getting better stuff like that. But, mm -hmm. um, I, I was just shocked at the speed at which you were coming back from this. Is that okay. common? Um, it, I, I guess I have to say it'll depend on the person and how, you know, I went to speech therapy. I went to lymphedema therapy. I did a lot. I did physical therapy, um, for every part of my body that like my wrist and my shoulder from the neck dissection. And so I was just very much focused on that. I stopped my job. I stopped training. I did everything I could to make sure that I be, I was the priority, you know, other than my kids and what I had to do as a mom. Um, but getting my speech back was a big one. I really, really worked hard with the speech therapist. Um, and they were able to preserve the tip of my tongue, which was huge for speech. Um, I get caught up when my mouth gets dry because they removed a salivary gland. But um, there's one, one letter is really hard to say, and that's a, a G. It's just because you just don't think about this stuff until you have to, you know. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's, 
just something that I'm going to deal with uh, forever. But I was very intentional about um, doing everything I could early on, knowing that, especially with lymphedema and fibrosis, if I had not gone to see uh, them at the Diani Center at Vanderbilt to have lymphedema massage therapy, that can get really bad really quickly. Um, scar tissue, all of that stuff, if you don't take care of it kind of immediately. So I just was very intentional about it. You said you don't think about this stuff until you have to. And it reminds me a lot of like James was eating fine until he went in the hospital and got intubated and then he just stopped and he never learned how. And it took us like two years to teach him how to eat. Mm-hmm. Two, three days a week, he's going to feeding therapy to learn how to eat. Yeah. He's just so used to, and it's probably the six months with the G, NG tube where he's gagging on stuff. He's just was never felt comfortable for him. He just didn't learn. It's he, you, yeah. You take all this stuff for granted, right? Until mm-hmm. you have to. And I remember kids would look at him and say, "How come he doesn't? He can't eat. He doesn't know how. He never learned how." And right. it's it's something that we just learn. We see, and it's it's everything that we do, right? It's like these little steps to take that become a habit, or we learn how to do it. So, and then when it's taken away from you. Um, isn't it interesting how, how we take so many things for granted, take the so little much. things mm-hmm. that are so powerful that we need to do anything. Like I think about my vision, my hearing, my speech, like yeah. all these kind of things that you just kind of expect. Yeah. And if we lost any one of those things, it's just yeah. a massive change in how we operate, how we have to live our lives. So so what about, what was your mindset through that comeback? Like, is that the time, like, where was the real, the struggle? Was there a struggle during this period that you had to overcome a lot of things during that comeback? Was that the hardest part or was it the, the early stage or middle stage? So I think, you know, I, I really wanted to taste ice cream again. <laughs> there, I really wanted to eat cheese again. And, you know, I don't have certain taste buds on my right side of my tongue that, work clearly because it's my wrist in my tongue. Um, (laughs) but I joke about that and I, with the doctors, I'm like, you couldn't have done like part of my foot because then I could always say things and then be like, Oh, foot and mouth, (laughs) (laughs) but I can't say wrist and mouth, but, um, yeah. So I really wanted to be able to eat, um, foods again. Like that was a huge motivation for me. Like who doesn't love food? Right. Um, I did have a setback too. I got a neck infection where one of the, um, tubes were and I had to go back into the ER which was a nightmare of an evening with my uh father um but you know there there were there were always some setbacks um in those in those early days it was mostly about just trying to get enough food into the feeding tube before I was finally able to have that removed but even after I had that removed I think the hardest thing was trusting my ability through my mouth to be able to swallow again like I I remember the first time my dad said, drink two sips of water. And I was like, I can't do it. And he was like, you got to do it. And I was like, I can't do it. And he was like, you have to do it. And so I did it. And as uncomfortable and, you know, nauseous as it made me feel like I knew for my own survival, I had to do certain things. Um, as for like getting back to normal life, like I, I set a goal, I want to be able to do a plank again, which is hard with the risks that I have, but like just small goals um, I knew I wanted to play tennis by spring. Um, I set kind of like midterm goals. Um, uh, you know, as those those little things that I kind of just set for myself. And I even wrote on my a little post-it note by my bed. And by my five-year 
cancer bucket list is to get on the Ellen show. Um, you know, but I think about that and I laugh too, because I'm like, what makes my story worthy? I don't know. Like I, I'm sure, sure I've, you know, gone through this, but like you've said, everyone is suffering in their own way. Everyone has their own issues. And, um, I struggle with that. Like why, you know, why is this that important? Um, but then sometimes when I tell my story and see how impacting it is, or from a young mom's perspective, I can see, okay, well, this might help, you know, somebody. Um, to, I, so. I think, I think first of all, you're, you're selling yourself incredibly short with that last comment. Like the, I'd say we'll have thousands of people listen to the show and mm -hmm. there might be one that says I have a more compelling story than you. Sure. Um, it's, it's just amazing to to hear this and go through it because you and I haven't, I mean, this is the first that we've really dug into this and discussed it. And I, I had no idea how, uh, how it was going to affect me the way that it has so far, because um, these are, these are wounds that, that I obviously have not healed for me. Um, and part of it is because we have to go back again into this world. But um, you have the story that you have that power, the, 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 just I, I keep going back to this word mindset because you are you're you're putting yourself in this place that you mm -hmm. you are strong for your kids you are strong for your husband you're strong for yourself you fought through the whole thing you were at least from what it sounds like always positive and there were times where you had these these breakdowns you had this time where you said I want to give up but then you had that support network fortunately that was there for you to catch you right and mm -hmm. you're just. I mean, I, I've known you for a long time and I know that you're the kind of person who you're a total fighter you're, and you're going to win. You're incredibly competitive and, you. <laughs> you know, winning in this journey and winning in life is no different, right? And, um, sure. you know, part of the, the reason why I want to have this conversation is that I want you to know how, um, how incredibly powerful this message is. And I know that the feedback that we'll get from this will compel you and propel you to do more with this story because that we're a compilation of our stories. We just, that's, that's who we are and what we are and what makes us. But you say like everybody's going through something and they are, and I don't want to discount what anybody else is going through right now. We all have something. If you think that everybody's life is perfect or everybody that you come across is having a great day all the time, there's not things behind the facade that you see. It, mm -hmm. It's, it's not true. Everybody's got something. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got something going on. And the, it's really how we handle that. That's the key. Like, what are we doing with it? Sure. And I mean, the, the other part that I didn't mention in the beginning of why I wanted you to come on is because this is a fantastic platform for us to share about oral cancer in general and how deadly it can be and how, how fast it can grow and how important it is that if you have something that it, that's going on that you're worried about to go get it checked out right away. Right. And like, if we can use any, any of the, like the, I have a microphone and we have some listeners, like if anybody's listening to that, we'll give you the the route at the end, like Natalie has some great um, like places to send you some ideas, some things to do, and we'll yeah. cover that. But you know, you, yeah. So you've got, have you ever read the book called uh, the compound effect by Darren Hardy? You ever read that? I have book? not. Okay. But well, you also read like, 60 books in a year or something yeah. a couple of years ago. I tried. So you'll have it in two days and it, I think it'll be an interesting one for you to read about because you, you're, you're, it's just these small steps. It's these small changes that, that are made over time become this massive change. And that's, it's, it's the journey that you're on over the last few years with, 
the changes that you've had to make this like swallow that one sip of water that one sip becomes two and those two swallows become three and it's just like the planking and and doing anything that we wanted to accomplish it doesn't happen overnight it's not Mm -hmm. a light switch it's it's small things and it's it goes both ways good habits and bad habits Bad habits are formed by small changes over time that become bad habits in the big picture. And same thing with success, same thing with, um, with anything that we do in, in life. It's just, it's small changes over time. So I'm going to send you that one. Um, it's Thank one of my you. favorite books. Um, I was just you. telling somebody today on our call, you're welcome. It's one of these, my buddy, uh, or my, my staff this morning, I recommended it to them. And I, I said, my, my uncle, um, who'd been smoking for like 35, 40 years of his life, mm-hmm. this was one of the catalysts of reading that book that helped him quit smoking. He's quit smoking about uh, two or three years ago now. And it's, it's just the, the mental change and challenge that we have going forward is the key. And the ha- yeah, it's the habit 100% with that, especially. Like yep. And you've got a, you've got a habit of, of beating things, of succeeding, of being in competition. And I think what that does is it drives us to, mm-hmm. to do what we need to do um, in life and in business. I'm what, what else, what else can like, what, if somebody's going through something like this, like that, yeah. we, I, I really want to speak to the guy that we have in our group. Um, yeah. he's probably in a place right now. Like what advice would you give him? So he, he just had surgery to remove this tumor. And mm-hmm. so now, now what? Cause he's, he's probably in a place of it, it can come back. I don't know what's happening. I'm in this unknown. Like what, sure. what kind of advice would you give him there? Um, so for me, it was to set small goals and then kind of midterm goals and then long-term goals. Um, Like I said, I I went over a few of them. Um, But the other thing is um, saying yes to others, wanting to help, um, whether that's, you know, let me give your kid a ride to soccer practice or let me bring you a meal. Rob and I have always been very much like, no, 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 we can do this on our own. But this was the first time in our lives where we really had to say yes to the community because they want to help. And, it's kind of like a, it's a catalyst effect. It just, it makes us want to, you know, give back again to others. And um, so saying yes is a big one. Um, Letting your caregivers be there for you, letting them feel the emotion that they're feeling as well. Um, Faith, you know, have faith. And, you know, I, cannot even tell you how much my church family meant to me during this time as well. Um, and prayers. And, um, the other thing, Oh, the big one for me was I found a group of people at Gilda's club here in middle Tennessee. Um, Gilda's club was started by, um, Gilda Ragnar, who was married to Jean Wilder, Jean Wilder. Yeah. Who was, uh, Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. She started it. She got cancer back in the seventies or something. And she realized there really wasn't a support group for, um, people going through cancer. That was like a, uh, an emotional support group. And so Gilda's club was created across the nation. They have local chapters everywhere for every single type of cancer where you can go and meet once a month. You can go in as often as you want. It's completely free. Um, and so I go once a month to the head and neck cancer group and have made the, most awesome friends there. A lot of them are in the music industry. A lot of them have been big, heavy smokers for years um, or chewed tobacco or big into alcohol. And um, just like I'm the young, I was the youngest one in there when I started. Um, But 
you know, it's just, it's finding some sort of support where, um, you know, it's like-minded individuals. And I say that because your caregivers, there's nothing more important than those caregivers who are there for you. But at the same time, they can't quite get into the same headspace as you or quite understand why you might be crying 10 hours of the day, you know? So just having that, knowing that what you're going through is normal and okay. And there are others like you. Those are few points, I guess, that um, I can recommend. Yeah, I think I, I really love the faith, um, the faith comment. So mm-hmm. we, we're pretty much run on fear, mm-hmm. uh, it seems. And it's fear or faith that you can choose what it's yeah. going to be. I'd much rather live my life on faith than um, just kind of fear and avoiding fear and avoiding issues and, and, and those kind of things. Me too. Yeah. Amen. So, so before we wrap up, I, I have one more question for you. And I think it goes to this place of, um, of depression. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of the, that's, that's an area that people can fall into very easily after something like this. Have you ever mm-hmm. felt yourself go there or, or see that in, in this journey that you've had, whether it's you or somebody else around you? Um, so yes, I keep Xanax by my bed um, for anxiety that I get. Um, I, with anxiety, um, I don't have a fear of dying. I have a, I have developed a fear of if I die, are my kids going to be okay? Um, and that's actually a very real fear. There's actually a name for it. But so when Rob is traveling on business and I'm alone with the kids, like I lie in bed at night, a lot of times, uh, need my Xanax to help, but I lie in bed at night and my heart pounds, my stomach hurts. I have such sick issues because I think if something happens to me right now in this moment, my kids who are now seven and nine, what have we prepared them enough to know what to do if something happens to me right now? Um, do I think something will, am I doing great? I I am, but that's like you were saying, that's the emotional side. Um, and it's a form of depression. I, I think Gilda's club helps me a lot. I still see a therapist. Um, my kids, unfortunately, my oldest has developed some anxiety. Um, so we all see a therapist. We went early on too to family therapy to help them kind of through all this. But um, depression is a, I think everyone kind of deals with depression at some point in their lives. And um, it's just one of the hardest things I think to kind of overcome depression and anxiety. I feel like a lot of times go hand in hand. I um, like with, with you, like I think about like, when I have to run into people who knew me before this and they're going to see how much I've changed physically and maybe they won't, maybe it's just my, um, my fears. Um, they're going to, they're going to hear that I sound differently. They're going to, they remember me from when I used to sing and they don't know that I can't sing anymore. Um, I think that's, that's adds a little bit to the depression, depression side, even though I feel like I'm a very confident person, there are those things. Um, and then I get, upset at times when I meet somebody new, I think, well, they're not going to really know what I was like before all this. And they might now just see me as, you know, oh, that that's the girl who had, you know, her tongue removed or something, you know? So there are, there's a lot going on up here, but um, yeah. So is, so is the, is the way to get past that, all of those things, like the solution to a lot of those things or um, is, is maintenance. It's uh, seeing somebody, it's, uh, it's leaning on your support network. It's, um, it's being positive. It's all of those, th- those and using things. what has happened to you to towards something positive, um, and being able to help somebody else and Gilda's club and church and, and all those people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because I, I remember when you reached out to me, now that you mentioned it, it you said, well, hey, I, I might sound a little bit different, or I'm also going to have yeah. this uh, cover on my wrist when I come in. And that was more for me than for you, probably. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like I told you, I remember hugging you when you came in and just said, oh my gosh, you're doing amazing. Like you are like doing so much better than I thought you were. You made it sound like you weren't even going to be able to talk to me. And I can understand everything that you're saying. We are having a full on conversation. And mm -hmm. I don't care who you were. I care about who you are, you know? Right. And the fact that like now I see you in a totally different light than I did before. And I put you up on a pedestal before and you're even higher than now. So it's well, likewise. Well, <laughs> thank you. Um, but I, I'll tell you, like, I, I think a lot of this stuff goes on in our head, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's something that we are manifesting. It's not something that is that anybody else is seeing. And in fact, um, I, I don't know. I think about this a lot because we, we have some similar struggles with um, myself and Lucy and with James and everything that's mm -hmm. going on is the anxiety and the depression and, and things like that are there. And it, you kind of like beat each other up instead of um, like we have, you know, a, a little one that has this. So it's mm -hmm. much easier for us to, um, to take it out on each other than it is to anything else. Right. Yeah. So, um, really it's all going on. It's a battle that we're waging in our mind. And this transcends what we're talking about here. It's really everything that we do is all about the, the mind is such a powerful uh, thing that we have. It's a, such a powerful driving force in everything that we do and the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we make decisions and the way that we speak to people and how we react to something when it's not right. right it's just the, the frame of mind that we're in at the time. And if we can really start controlling that and start thinking about why do I feel this way? What's going on? How can I help? And, and I think the support network is the biggest thing. Like a lot of people just take it and they just, they just suck it up until mm -hmm. they explode. Right. Mm -hmm. So really talking about it and being open and honest and vulnerable in anything that we're doing, this kind of story, um, our life, our business, our work life, you know, anything that's going on is like leaning on that support network. The support is it. It's I, I need it all the time. Well, thank you for propelling me to tell my story today. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, I hope that you continue to do so. And I know that you've reached out to me a couple of times and we've had some talks about what you want to do and where you want to go and what you want to be. But, you know, I, I personally, you know, obviously we're talking kind of like on the air, right? On the recording now, but I think you have an amazing story. I think you need to share it. I think you can help hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of people um, that have, are going through something just like this. And, uh, I think you're fantastic. So uh, I'm going to push you in that direction. And I think it could also like when that happens, the power that you have when you, when you just help somebody else get through that, it changes who you are too. Mm -hmm. So when you see somebody become successful because of something that you said or did or any impact, and you've seen it as a coach, right. as a mentor, as you're growing up um, with your kids, that, mm -hmm. that changes how we think it changes our mindset. It, it, it lets us get over some of the things that we're still carrying around. Um, when we can go out and be impactful, we can see, um, see progress and success in what we're doing. So, um, we'll talk about that more okay. afterwards and yeah. together. So how can people, let's see, where do you want to send people? I, I I'd say next month is, um, oral cancer awareness month. Is that right? That is correct. April is oral cancer awareness month, which when I say oral cancer, it kind of is, um, the throat, the, or the um, oral cavity, the tongue, the base of the tongue, um, neck area. It's also, um, there, there's a whole bunch, basically anything that's head and neck, um, it is not thyroid cancer. That's its, its own. So, yeah, and so Oral Cancer Awareness Month is April. 
Okay. So, um, so go get checked out. If you've got yeah. something, uh, talk about this, share this with somebody, share Natalie's story. Like if you know somebody who, who needs to hear this and whether it's, uh, they don't have to be going through cancer, might be going through something yeah. else. It's this, hopefully what you guys took from this is this is a journey of, it's a struggle, right? It's something that was placed in Natalie's life mm-hmm. that she was not expecting. It, she thought there's no chance that this is going to happen when she woke up that day and how she got through it and, and went through right. it. And if you could plug in just about anything there, obviously not uh, as dire as something like this potentially, but we're all going through something. But I sh- let me, if you don't mind, add that oral cancer is growing at a high rate among young women, uh, and they don't know why. There are links to HPV virus and Epstein-Barr virus. Um, usually when you're diagnosed, you're tested. Mine was not related to those two. Um, but there's um, oral cancer screenings that dentists should be doing, and they should do them once a year at one of your two dental visits. And it's either an eight-point check that they do with their finger, um, or some of the more advanced uh, dental locations have something called a Velscope, which is a scope that has a specific light that can tell if there's any abnormal cell growth in your mouth. I had never had one before I was diagnosed. Not one of my dentists ever had done one. Um, it, because oral cancer is, is growing, more dentists are doing them. The best ones should do them free of charge, but um, not a lot. Of, I will say not all of them do. So, just well, I th- that's a timely uh, comment because I'm going to the dentist next week and uh, I'm going to be asking for that. So, okay. um, and what else? Like, where can we send them to find out more information about oral cancer? Are there some good websites? Is there yeah, a place there, that they can, is there any type of places that you would recommend some people donate if they want to? Like, what does that look like? There is the Oral Cancer Foundation is excellent. Um, Gilda's Club of Middle Tennessee is awesome uh, to specify. Um, but also like, depending on where you are, like I am very big on donations to the specific oral department at Vanderbilt. Um, there are ways to donate to those specific areas as well. Um, one thing I really struggled with in the hospital was I would ring the bell for the nurse needing something immediately. And they would come on the loudspeaker and say, how can we help you? Well, I couldn't speak. <laughs> and so I would ring it again. How can we help you? Eventually, my dad or Rob or my mom would have to go and say, my daughter can't speak. So there has to be something on the doors that say, um, you know, hearing impaired or voice impaired or something, you know, like so that they are aware of that sort of thing. There's a lot of ways to give and donate. Um, I have my own YouTube channel, which tells a little bit about my story. It's under Natalie Hennis. Um, you can Google YouTube, Natalie Hennis, my fight and my, uh, uh, my video story will come up. Um, I also have handles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where I um, send out information quite frequently and we'll be doing a lot Um, over the next month uh, leading up to oral cancer awareness month Um, there the oral cancer foundation has been the biggest and the best um, in regards to getting information out though right we'll put the we'll put the link to your youtube channel in the show notes we'll also put some of your uh, links to like facebook instagram twitter that kind of stuff whatever you want to share with us we'll put it in there so they can find you and follow you if they want or and, and hey here's Here's the deal, guys. I want you all to go to Natalie's stuff and I want you to encourage her. I want you to say, hey, we love your story. We want, we want to hear more from you. Uh, I think you should, I, you, your story is amazing. You could impact thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people by getting this out there. So please go there, tell her, give her, give her some support. This was not easy. 
to come on and talk through this. It was, uh, um, this is the first time that she's sharing this story really out there kind of on a podcast verbally like this. And, um, I'm just thankful that you did. I think, I think our member is going to take a lot from this. And I think there's a lot of people out there who like the, the way that I put it usually is if I just change one, like one person needed to hear this message today, we did our job. That's it. And if there's probably dozens, if not, you know, hundreds of people out there that, that need to hear this right now, it's because they're struggling with something. And, and when they can see somebody's like positivity through as much negative things that were going on in your life, I know that they'll have the power to get through those kind of things. So. Well, thank you so much, Billy. I really appreciate being here. And I really um, will be saying a lot of prayers for your, your member and your friend. And I, I hope that all goes well for him and his family. Thank you. All right. Um, I think that's it. Natalie, I had Thank so much you. fun talking to you today. I, I did too. That we, uh, we did this. And if anybody has any questions, I'll kind of direct them uh, over to you. And uh, if we can get any more information out to people about this, uh, I'd, be, uh, I'd be happy to. So thank you so Great. much for sharing your journey. I know it wasn't easy. Um, it seemed to be like it was a little harder on me than it was on you. So you did a good job. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, I just wanted to give you some words of encouragement. Uh, Robin Sharma said that obstacles are the cost of greatness. So I truly believe that, that this is just another obstacle on your way to greatness. So we love you, man. Hang in there. Keep your head up. Stay in the game. We love you. You got a ton of supporters. Hey, buddy. I know things are hard for you right now. Um, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with those hard stuff. I just want to let you know that uh, I'm thinking about you. And um, I know that there's a purpose in suffering, although that you can't really see it right now. It's refining you. It's making you stronger. And also it's giving people, uh, those you love, an opportunity to uh, you know, show how much they love you and reach out to you. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your example um, of suffering with courage. And I know that, uh, I know that this is building you and it's going to help you to become better, even though you can't see it right now. So um, I just want to say I know it's always darkest before dawn and your dawn is coming, brother. I appreciate you. Love you. Stay strong. Hey, buddy. One of my friends used to have this saying, he would say, uh, sometimes when you think you're in a dark place and it feels like you've been buried, you've actually been planted, which makes for a lot of fun when running around going, I'm planted, I'm planted. (laughs) We are cheering for you. We love you so much. Hang in there. You got this. Hey, bud, you're going to beat this. This is just another storm that you're going to weather like all the ones you've weathered before. Just know that your village is behind you and we're here to help whenever you need it. So just reach out. Thanks for listening to the seven figure flipping podcast with Bill Allen. If you want to grow and scale your house flipping or wholesaling business, check out more insider tips and strategies from the nation's most successful real estate investors at sevenfigureflipping.com.